Welcome to Black Diplomats, a foreign policy podcast about safety and security. I'm your host, Terrell Starr. Today, we will be talking about all things Iran. And unlike those other news shows that talk about Iran, but almost never talk to Iranians, we actually have a few Iranians on the show to talk about Iran. Go figure. First, we have Eli Giranmaya, a senior policy fellow and deputy head of the Middle East and North Africa program at the European Council on Foreign Relations. And we also have Michelle Dover, director of programs at Plowshares Fund, where she leads the grant making team. Prior to joining Plowshares Fund in 2015, Michelle conducted research at the James Martin Center for Nonproliferation Studies on Nuclear chemical and biological cooperation threat reduction programs. And finally, we have Nagar Mortazavi, an Iranian-American journalist and political analyst who hosts the Iran podcast. Welcome to the show, y'all. Thank you for having us. Before we get into the news and just talking about this wonderful country named Iran and, you know, all the heavy stuff, I just want to do a mental health check with everybody. So... I'm going to start with Ellie. What's what's on your mind? How are you processing all this? Well, I have to say things did take a slightly more positive turn for me when um, the new U.S. administration came into office. I remember the morning of the inauguration in London, waking up and telling my husband just, you know, I can actually go to sleep without worrying that I'm going to wake up on London time uh, with a tweet from President Trump. Uh, declaring some sort of a imminent strike or, or a new policy um, that's going to have extensive impact on family and friends in Iran. So I have to say, I, it's actually my mental health um, has been coping a lot better since uh, January the 19th in some ways. I, I, I definitely feel that. And, you know, <laughs> you know, the wildest thing that really took me for took me off the bat was when you saw on Twitter actual conversations about, you know, like the minutia of New Start. The thing about it that most people don't know is that these talks, before you even get to having an actual deal, there are years of negotiations that about how these things work. And there's just a whole bunch of nothing. Then there's a whole bunch of something. And it happens over the course of years. And we actually saw this being tweeted, right? Yeah. And, and, and you know, in the, in the case of Iran, you'd wake up to, to tweets during the Trump administration about possible cultural sites in Iran being targeted by, by U.S. strikes. So, yeah, I mean, it, it was a bizarre uh, world. And I'm, I'm thankful that at least that stressful part of waking up um, to Twitter alerts is, is somewhat more controlled now. Yeah, because they kicked him off. I mean, <laughs> he has a whole bunch of PR people, which is basically the Republican Party and a bunch of conservatives conservatives who are touting his talking points, but he's off the platform and they should have done it while he was on. But yeah, I feel you. So, uh, Nagar, um, what's, what's, how are you dealing with um, your mental health with everything that's going on? Well, I'm also definitely feeling a relief. It has been a very tough four years. And, you know, for all the reasons that it was tough for many Americans and people across the world, it was also extra tough for us here, Iranian Americans, with, you know, the president, the top person in power, constantly dehumanizing and vilifying 
not just the government of Iran, but the entire nation calling Iranians a terrorist nation, the travel ban that he imposed on Iranians that separated many families. My own family was affected by the travel ban. And just the general spirit coming out of the White House and of course on Twitter, you know, because you had a troll with actual power, you know, who was tweeting that 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 could be anything he said could could eventually be made true when he threatened to attack or to strike or to um, you know even start a war like Ellie was saying that was an actual worry at some points at least two or three times in the past two years that was something that we came really close to so it's definitely a relief it's not over it's going to take time for all of that to go over but for example the travel ban was rescinded on day one of the biden administration so that's a relief and i'm just hoping for for better for us here living in the u.s and also for the two countries between iran and the u.s for for better relations. Yeah, I, I, I hear that. And I think what's really unfortunate about this administration, and to be clear, Islamophobia and all of these discriminatory cultural attitudes towards Iran and, also, and, and ignorance as well about the wider Middle East have been going on for decades. And as somebody who enjoys traveling, as somebody who I, you know, I go to, I'm in Ukraine and I'm learning about Russia and I'm learning about uh, Eastern Europe as a, you know, as a black man who grew up in Detroit, which is the blackest city per capita in the United States. I think what's really made me the person that I am is that I've always learned or I've always embraced living amongst people who are different from me. And I come from a city where I grew up with the first black mayor in our city's history. And he died in around 1996, but not only was he a, our first black mayor, he was a black power mayor. So he was somebody who talked about black liberation and really big in the civil rights. He was a Tuskegee airman, all of these things. And what's really Interesting about all this, and I explain it to Ukrainians, and I explain it, and, and imagine trying to talk race in a place like Ukraine, right, or Russia, talking to Russians or other Eastern Europeans, is that there was nothing about black liberation that tried to speak down on other people or make them less than, right? There's nothing about black liberation that says that in order for me to elevate as a human being, you have to be down. You have to be to the ground, right? That, they, you know, and he just exacerbated people's fears because that's what's required to win, right? Because, you know, he started with people from south of the border, right? With Mexico, particularly, you got to build a wall. And, you know, I do a whole lot of yoga to, to chill out and nice bottle of wine because... You know, if you spend, I just, I just think hate is just such a, it, it ages you. Finally, uh, Michelle, so, you know, you're in Washington, D.C., and with everything that's going on, how are you maintaining? No, thanks, Terrell, for asking that question and for bringing up the insurrection. Um, I was actually out of D.C. that day, and... Um, 
have some really complicated feelings about it. Uh, you know, on one hand, my, my family and friends were all very glad that I was safe and far away. Um, but, you know, on the other hand, for me, I've, I've lived in D.C. 10 years. That doesn't make me a, you know, D.C.ite or someone who's been there, uh, you know, long, long term, but long enough that I, I love the city and I live, you know, just a few blocks south of the capital. So, you know, watching the violent mob, organized mob, take over the Capitol. You know, they were walking through the areas that I go running, the place I meet with my friends for picnics, the, you know, places that I've met my colleagues um, for coffee or hold meetings. So it was a it was a very personal moment. I think, you know, more generally, um, I definitely can uh, relate to what Ellie and Nagar were talking about in terms of a sense of relief. Um, and, you know, we we still have our challenges that we're dealing with, but it's I'm no longer worried that I'm going to wake up in the morning and see that the U.S. has started a war overnight with Iran. So I guess the best way to cap this all off is by saying that, thank God, um, that the activists of the Black Lives Matter movement, who I'm going to always give a shout out to for taking us through all of this to get enough people to the polls, despite extreme voter suppression, uh, to elect Joe Biden. And now we have a, an adult in the White House who is not a virulent racist and um, what I, who I think, in my opinion, is a sociopath. OK, <laughs> so good. We, we, we don't have that anymore. We have other challenges, obviously, but. You know, you at least have an adult who at least is willing to listen and you can, you know, have conversations about what can work towards something that's a bit more positive and constructive. And so, you know, yeah, I mean, you know, so so we have some good things to be thankful of, to be, you know, off, obviously pushing accountability, of course. But yeah, so I want to get into like the newsy part, what's going on with uh, Iran, according to NBC News, the Biden administration has joined their European partners in offering to restart talks with Iran over the 2015 Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, known commonly as the Iran Deal. Basically, they agreed to uh, restrictions that will allow it to have enough enriched uranium to maintain the country's energy needs without having the ability to build a nuclear bomb. There's a lot more to it, um, but that's, you know, like the general gist of it. And to be clear, until the former orange occupant in the White House pulled out of the deal, Iran was honoring it, basically, right? Now, the Biden administration has long said that they will rejoin the deal, but Politico is now reporting that top aides within the administration are having second thoughts of rejoining or they're really contemplating whether or not to just start a new deal altogether again. So... Ellie, you know, what, 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 where do we stand? Well, Gerald, there's been a lot of um, movements back to back in the last few days. Um, there's been a lot of shuttle diplomacy between the Iranians and the Americans conducted by several different um, middle actors in Europe and also in the Middle East. I have to say um, I, I'm landing on the more optimistic side of things, um, regardless of how tense things have gotten between the US and Iran. Um, 
I think there's several things here that we need to point out. One is, yes, we do have a new, much more capable US administration in the White House. But so far, a month in, from Iran's perspective, the policy of President Trump, the so-called maximum pressure policy of unprecedented sanctions against Iran, remain in place. So Biden and his team have not yet made any practical moves to change the state of play for Iran. And so what that has led to is Iran has said that as of a couple of days time, they are going to reduce their uh, um, cooperation with international inspectors that oversee its nuclear activities. Um, they're not going to leave the deal. They're still very much part of the deal, unlike the United States, but they see it as part of their rights under the agreement to reduce uh, their obligations so long as the other side of the agreement, which is the world powers, are unable to provide Iran with the economic relief and the sanctions relief that it bargained for in 2015. So my hope is we are going to have a mini crisis that we can manage in the coming weeks over this issue of inspections of Iran's nuclear activities. And both the US and Iran can finally climb down the ladder. They've, they've staked out quite firm starting positions for talks at the moment, where the US says Iran has to reverse all of its nuclear activities going beyond the agreement. And the Iranians are saying, well, wait a minute, the US is the party that left the deal. So we need to see signs of movement first from their side before we take any steps. They're the guys in bad faith here. And so, you know, my hope is that after this tense moment next week, we're going to find an opportunity where both sides can present a win-win for moving forward. The Iranians can say, look, we didn't fall to our knees either under Trump or under the Biden administration, and we're sticking to our guns. And the Americans can say, well, we didn't negotiate with a gun to our head under Iran's timeline, uh, what, they, what the US will perceive as kind of nuclear blackmail. Uh, we've let this deadline that Iran has set for reducing inspections come and go, but now we're ready to sit down and talk. And here I think that uh, the European Union, um, as one of the parties to that original deal, is probably one of the few honest brokers, quote unquote, that can actually get the US and Iran in the same, let's say, virtual room because of COVID, they're not gonna probably meet in person, to actually hash out a technical roadmap for how both sides basically depart this really maximalist position that they have at the moment and come to an agreement for how to go back into the deal. The good positive thing is, we know that both Biden and the Iranian leadership want to preserve this agreement and now they've just got to work out how right so michelle you know the way that i've been following this since you know since the since we all have been following it since the uh obama administration i think one most americans don't even know what the genesis of all this is right that's the first thing. And then two is all, I feel like the media casts Iran automatically as this very uh, adversarial body. Now, you know, Iran is a very complicated place, just like America is a very complicated place. And so 
I'm interested in what you think about the bargaining positions, um, particularly, you know, like from the U.S. perspective, but particularly from Iran. Are there some legitimate concerns that Iran has in this deal that we are not being made aware enough in our own media? No, it's a it's a really good question. And, you know, what I've always found so interesting about these nuclear negotiations is you're taking the weight of this whole relationship between these two countries and putting it on something that very specific and very technical. Um, and it can't always mm -hmm. hold all of that. But all of that energy comes out in that space. So, you know, what is the deal? The deal is the the Iran agreement is the most in-depth nuclear non-proliferation agreement we have ever seen, period, full stop. And so as Ellie was talking about, I have no doubt that they can put together a good technical roadmap for all sides to come back into compliance. Um, it's there in the agreement. I've read all, you know, 110 pages of it. So... You know, in terms of the bargaining positions and and things that we really need to think about, it is an agreement. As Ellie was saying, you know, all sides gave up something in order to to reach this point. And so there's this tension that the U.S. pulled out and they put sanctions back in, denied Iran that relief that they had entered into the agreement for. And Iran has taken very measured steps, all reversible steps, um, in the time since the, since the U.S. pulled out. Um, and so I think it's, you know, how do you acknowledge um, the imbalance of that situation? Um, you know, recognizing that Iran is in a deep economic crisis, has been severely impacted by COVID, um, you know, and, and still use this technical, again, nuclear has nothing to do with COVID, um, to get back into that place where we can have those, those uh, negotiations. And I think the final piece, too, that I always sit with, at least on the technical side, another piece of this agreement was that Iran permanently changed one of their reactors, the re Iraq reactor, mm -hmm. that ended, that, um, totally blocked any way that it could create a create enough plutonium for a bomb. Explain what plutonium is because a lot of people don't know what that is. Yeah, no, it's a good question. So there's basically there's two types of materials generally that you use for a nuclear weapon. They're very rare. Um, and one of them, plutonium, is produced in a nuclear reactor. Essentially, you have to then pull it out, separate it. But uh, Iran had a reactor that would have been able to produce this if Iran chose to pursue that path, which I think is very like that is a separate decision. Whether you have the tools and whether you choose to do it are separate things. Um, and so what they did, though, as a part of this agreement was they pulled out the innards of this reactor, changed the design so that it could not create this plutonium and gave it up. And so, you know, when we think about the irreversibility of this agreement and how deep this agreement goes. It's, it's not just, um, you know, sanctions here for tweaks there. These are, you know, real strategic choices that Iran has made. And so there's a lot riding for all parties on the ability to get this deal um, back in solid shape. Right, thank you. So Terrell, can I just mention one quick thing? 
Yeah, it was just going back to your original question of what's missing from the media. And I think Negar, given her media platform, can also add a lot to this. But for me, what I'm concerned about as someone who's been watching this story unfold for, you know, since 2013, the media is um, really having a difficulty laying out, uh, you know, a clear picture of <laughs> what happened under Trump almost. Um, and it sometimes feels that, you know, just because Biden has come in, there's now a collective amnesia about, you know, all the things that happened under Trump. The fact of the matter is the United States withdrew from an international agreement that was enshrined by a UN Security Council resolution. And now we're in a situation where all the headlines talk about Iran violating a deal, the Europeans are talking about Iran having to come back and stop its breaches of the agreement. And it's as if we've forgotten that, hey, wait a minute, all of the sanctions and all of the steps that were taken by the Trump administration in an attempt to sabotage this agreement are very much there. And there is an onus on the United States to recognize that and correct that um, as part of a process for diplomacy. But I think that narrative is really getting lost, in, particularly in the Western media at the moment. The United States pulled out of the deal Iran really wasn't obligated to continue on with it anyway, right? So I don't necessarily, you know, you can correct me if I'm wrong. So they, the United States pulled out. So technically they didn't break anything, right? I mean, they didn't violate anything. Well, they did breach, in my view, their obligations under the UN Security Council 2231, which enshrines that nuclear agreement which is a separate story, but it's still a connected part of the story. And from Iran's perspective, um, and again, I think this is a disputed point from a legal perspective, uh, depending on how you interpret the agreement, but Iran maintains that actually what it's doing is not violating the agreement, but it's acting in accordance with a very specific paragraph under the agreement. Folks can look it up, it's paragraph 36, which says that Iran can reduce its uh, obligations under the deal, essentially, in response to failures uh, on, on the other side of the equation to, to uh, fulfill their commitments. So essentially, Iran is saying, because none of the current parties to the nuclear deal can provide Iran with the economic relief that was promised under the deal due to US reimposing its sanctions, Iran also feels that it can reduce compliance. So it's I think that what's missing from the debate in, in the Western media is putting Iran's case uh, to, to also their readers. Um, and yes, there may be multiple ways of interpreting what's happening, but there's only a one-sided way that it's being described at the moment. Okay, yeah. Thank you for clarifying that with me, um, because obviously you know the intricacies of the deal more than I do. So, Nagar, you know, you um, host the Iran podcast so tell me about this uranium position that uh it's just uh, so hard for western media to present now i'll tell you my view of it i think the reason why they don't present it one um uh, most most people are not trained in area studies right so they just fundamentally don't know let's just start there uh and they don't have producers or editors that push them to know or they don't bring on people to challenge what they think about the deal and publicly learning about it. And so I think then also too, Iran, they, you know, there, there has to be a boogeyman and boogie and the boogeyman is Iran. And I have a whole lot of conversations about how I feel about that, about why, you know, about how America positions 
itself as the altruistic power and everyone else if you're not with us you're 100 evil but uh so nagar tell me about your observations of how iran's position has been presented in the media and what you know just what you observe well Charles, as you were explaining i think there's definitely a gap or a divide in how what's happening in the country and how it's portrayed in the media and a lot of it has to do with politics or the animosity, at least in the US, between the two countries, the media coverage, even the most professional outlets who do a really good job in covering a lot of other issues, it's overshadowed by the politics of the two countries. And I want to be fair that the same thing sort of happens on, in Iran as well. So Iranian politics or antagonism towards the US overshadows coverage of the US and Iranian media, although I have to say, I think some Iranian journalists know more about the US than American journalists know about Iran. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> sure, yes. Yeah, for sure. It's just, a, it's, it's just a problem that we've been dealing with. Iran has been reduced to a nuclear file in so many outlets, not all, I don't want to be um, unfair to all the outlets, but it's just this nuclear issue that you keep hearing and it, you know, for for a portion of the population, it just looks like a nuclear site, you know, it's like a, it's a whole country with a civilization with a history, but people just keep hearing about the nuclear program. And obviously, in a, from a negative perspective, that's also the nature of news in general, but there's also so much more to Iran, to the Iranian people, to the Iranian culture, even to the Iranian government, it's the Iranian politics is not a monolith, it's not all bad things happening on a daily basis. But I think even the non-nuclear stuff happening in the country get overshadowed because of the political antagonism. And then there's also another issue to be fair to journalists is access. And part of that is the paranoia of the Iranian state not giving enough access. For example, the type of access that American journalists have to a country like Lebanon, to a country like you know, Morocco, other countries in the region where they can travel easily, they can be based there. In Iran, this political antagonism and the, um, the paranoia of the state has added to them not allowing a lot of foreign journalists, especially American journalists, to be based in the country or to travel there for whenever they want, for whatever period. It's usually short trips in and out. So it's also difficult for journalists who can't get in to cover a country from far away if you don't speak the language, if you've never lived there, if you don't have any friends who are from there, and you're constantly hearing about this nuclear file from, from the officials, and some just, you know, take, take that political line and just run with it forever. I want to plug in a piece, a great piece. This is, this is a sarcastic piece, but I think it's great content that just came out by a veteran Iranian journalist, Iranian French, Laudan Nasseri, in Max Sweeney's, in the Max Sweeney's website. And she explained, basically the title is How to Write About Iran. That's a guide, as she says, whether you're working from your DC office, yeah, or your home in LA or New York. And that's exactly what's happening in many of the outlets. People are covering Iran from their DC office as reporters or as analysts or their homes in LA and New York without speaking the language, without knowing the context and without trying to travel there or being allowed to travel there. It's a combination of all of these factors. And you know, it becomes one of the least understood countries, I think, at least for Americans and here in the US as a result of that. Actually, Ellie sent me the, uh, Ellie sent me the link to it. I'm gonna read a few because it's, 
It's hilarious. Okay, so <laughs> I'm going to read a couple of points. and Just make sure you know that it's satire because some people took it <laughs> as, a real, as a real text. Okay, everybody, this is satire. <laughs> I'm going to repeat. This is satire. <laughs> All right, so always refer to Iran as the Islamic Republic and its government as the regime, or better yet, the mullahs. Number two, never refer to Iran's foreign policy. The correct terminology is its behavior. Everyone knows that Iran is a delinquent kid that always instigates trouble and must be disciplined. <laughs> this sounds like shit that 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 racist white people say about black people. But I'm I'm going to keep going. I'm going. <laughs> I'm going to keep going. Uh, <laughs> but you know, Terrell, it happens on a daily basis, and we're talking about prominent media and analysis. This is the way that black people are like people of color. In America, you know, and, and you know this, obviously, but like, you know, it's just like they, they do this shit to us so many ways. Number three, omit that Iran has a population of 80 million people with half a dozen ethnicities, languages and religions. If you travel to Iran, refer to yourself as not being in Iran, but inside Iran. Be transparent about the risk you are taking and spend as many as five consecutive days in the Iranian capital. Start your dispatch with the queasy feeling that you, the white man, <laughs> have a have a pond landing in Toronto. This shit is so fucking funny. Always take straightforward, brazen stances because nuances only lead to questions and create unnecessary confusion for readers. I'm gonna I'm gonna link to this article in the show notes. I, I just can't help but think about my time as a black American and why I enter journalism, you know. I'll never remember, I'll never forget when I was in grad school, that's when I started journalism. So imagine I'm this 25-year-old man. I was 26 and I started writing at the daily newspaper and I wanted to write about, you know, black folks on campus. Now, obviously, it was the University of Illinois and we had this racist mascot, the chief of Winowick, whatever, that was supposed to represent the American Indian. It was racist as hell. And... You know, they just had, they just said some real foul stuff about black people. And, you know, I would be one of the few journalists that the black people on campus would talk to. They're like, the, the Daily Illini is racist. And they were. I mean, what could I say? But, you know, I'll never forget, too, when I was a kid and I grew up in a, you know, the neighborhood was poor and all this other stuff. And then there was like some, uh, there was a, a an arson fire that took place across the street. You know, unfortunately, someone died. And I was like, I was maybe, <clears throat> 10 years old or 11 years old and a white woman comes up to the door knocks my grandmother's there and you know where i'm from you don't talk to cops you don't talk to nobody who ain't from where you at you know where, where you are you know and this woman was asked the way that she was asking questions i felt like she was like an anthropologist and it felt really offensive when I was young. I didn't know how to interpret everything, but it just felt bad when my grandmother, you could just feel her tension, like white woman, get the hell off my porch. You know, like that's, that's how she, that's the energy that she was giving this lady. And she was like, well, was it a drug house? I mean, like somebody literally died and you're just asking all of these questions, you know? So I'm saying all this all to say that I feel like across the board, 
the white man messes us all up. You know what I'm saying? Which is, you know, as far as our stories and it's because in large part, we don't, I feel like if, uh, you know, white people, they come from so many privileged spaces in life where if you're not dealing with discrimination, you're not going to have a sensitivity to naturally correct it. Like you have to undo things. Like I'm not a woman. And so there are things about, um, you know, uh, about the ways that women are treated unfairly about toxic masculinity, all those things, you have to learn to be a better person, you know, and all as we do this work. And I just feel like white journalists for years have never really been forced to do it. And I feel like the awakening in America came during the Black Lives Matter movement that started in Ferguson, you know, and so we started this new wave of better reporting on race issues across the board. But I feel like in international affairs, particularly with Iran, Nagar, we still have a long way to go. We do, Charles. Uh, let me just read this one more uh, from the from the text because it brings us back to that conversation that we were having from Ladan's text. It says, always remind readers that Iran is a dangerous country, more dangerous than any other country in the Middle East, and underline at any chance you get that it poses an imminent threat to the future of the entire world, and more particularly to the United States and Israel, both of which have nuclear weapons. You know, to put it in the big picture, this threat of Iran or this overhyped threat of Iran, you have people in California being scared about Iran. You know, the, the Iranian missile program, which can't get beyond the region, you know, even if they want it to. Right. Yeah, it's just, it's, it's, it's this entire politics intertwined with analysis, with the think tank world in DC, and then it gets into mainstream it gets into the media, it gets into cultural products, you get all these scary movies made in Hollywood about Iranians, there's nothing to balance it out. And that's the only vision um, that people get. And I think what when you bring it back to the domestic issues to race and, and you know, things that Americans are dealing with as different communities, it's very relevant and it's very similar. But foreign policy is always lagging behind and catching up to the progressives movement to you know changes um in the world and it's it's just unfortunate to see the slow pace on all areas of foreign policy but specifically on iran you know it, it's one of those things where i also when i talk about the kremlin i don't frame it as i don't frame russia as the boogeyman because at the end of the day america and russia are imperial powers and i think another thing is that we don't look at america as an imperial nation it is right it is an imperial power that is really not, it, it has similar aims as Russia, as China, which is the fucking dominate. Okay, same thing, you know. And so, Michelle, I want you to get to your point because I have some specific questions for you, but yeah, you're going to say something. Yeah, no, so just to like close that loop on what it means to have this otherizing in the media um, and, and the extent it goes, you know, going back to the insurrection, which you mentioned earlier, right? You know, when someone was interviewing Senator Susan Collins about her experience, she says, oh yeah, I heard the banging on the door and I thought the Iranians had finally come to get us. And everyone was like, what? <laughs> but I guess my point is, right, you spend so many years creating that threat narrative so that when you're finally in a, that when you're you're in a situation where there is an immediate threat to your physical safety 
You are not taking in all of the facts of your around you, of your context, of the preceding week, months, and years that would tell you This lady has a security clearance, doesn't is. she? Yeah, exactly. And so but it but her mind immediately went somewhere completely different. And like and that is the danger, right? And and I think, you know, more broadly, one of the things I thought was really cool about the Iran agreement was you saw diplomats around the table whose formative foreign policy experiences were really negative for the other country across the table. In Iran, it was the Iran-Iraq war where the U.S. sanctioned uh, and allowed Iraq to use chemical weapons against Iran. For the U.S., it was diplomats who had started their career at the beginning of the Iran hostage crisis and, you know, spent over a year seeing those daily images. Um, And they were able to, at the table, set that baggage aside and take a first step towards, like, positive engagement, towards diplomacy, towards negotiation, which can, at the end of the day, like, that communication that Nagar was talking about can help create that fuller relationship, fuller balance. It doesn't mean we're all friends, but it does mean that we can talk to each other and we can let families span boundaries around the world without interfering in their day-to-day lives. And so that's what I I saw in the agreement in addition to it being a nuclear agreement. And then, of course, what we saw, you know, attacked relentlessly during the previous administration and, and where we're trying to get back to today. Yeah. And then another thing is that Iran has the right to fundamentally feel threatened. I think that's one thing that's being lost here. So each when when you come to the table there, when you strip people of their humanity, you strip people of their feelings. Right. Because at the end of the day, people bring themselves to the table and they want to be understood. And when you speak from the position of always seeing them as an intact, seeing one party as an antagonist then you're going to strip them of that humanity which informs our foreign policy right and so often the way that our foreign policy has been constructed has been through the eyes of white men a lot of people don't know that the u.s state department for a long time if you are not white male pale and from the ivy league you weren't getting in there was a point where women were not, you know, where, you know, where women were not in the State Department. So, like, it, it, it's there's a history here that a lot of people aren't aware of, and that continues to be need to be deconstructed, you know. And so, Ellie, a lot of what you're saying um, really resonates with me. And I listened to your recent um, appearance on Pod Save the America, uh, Pod Save America, where you were discussing a lot of this, and. You know, one thing that I remember during the Obama administration, um, and someone please do do fact check me on this, but I do think in one of his interviews, Obama talked about, you know, in in the context of Iran and nuclear deal of putting oneself in, in, in your kind of adversary shoes and trying to understand the situation from from their side. And, you know, from, from a policy angle. Um, I hear I talk a lot to European diplomats and American diplomats a lot who the, the, the standard line is um, we need Iran to change its malign activities in the Middle East, uh, stop its terrorism, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. But when you talk to Iranians, they're like, OK, well, put yourself in our shoes for the last 20 years. We've been basically 
neighbors with U.S. soldiers uh, on one side of our border, Afghanistan, the other side of our border, Iraq. Uh, we have a NATO country, Turkey, which is another border. Uh, another border is Pakistan, a nuclear armed Pakistan. And our main uh, geopolitical foe or rival in the region is a nuclear armed Israel. So from our perspective, we're just trying to keep up with everybody else around us. And how would Americans feel if Iranian military uh, was stationed on its border with Canada and on its border with Mexico? You know, what are the Americans doing in our background, backyard in the Middle East? And so I think that part of understanding how uh, threat perceptions are viewed, and I, I'm, not, I'm not saying here by the Iranian people, I'm specifically focusing on the Iranian leadership, the same way that you're talking about how Kremlin views uh, things versus, you know, the Russian people. And I think that that is, you know, if, if we want to get anywhere on diplomacy between the US and Iran, we need to fundamentally understand that threat perceptions work both ways, and that you know, you can't ask Iran to disarm itself of all of its security apparatus just to make the United States and Europe um, feel uh, less threatened because actually Iran itself feels threatened by almost every actor surrounding it at the moment. It's a legitimate concern. There's just a lot that fundamentally speaking with the West, when they come to the table, they are steeped in hypocrisy. That's the thing, you know, and when you live in these countries and you actually have real conversations, particularly that are not in English, I've heard a lot of people, whether I was in Georgia or Russia or even here, have a whole lot of strong crit criticisms about the uh, the ways in which American government, the American government has colonized other nations, has abused its own people. And they're correct. And so, you know, just living in the country and just hearing that over and over again, like that informs how you, you know, damn, you're right. And so when I go, when I was in graduate school, because I did Peace Corps before I went to graduate school, you think about this when you're in a classroom full of people. And, you know, I was the only black person in my class. I was the first person, as far as I know, to uh, earn a master's degree in Russian Eastern European studies there. And you know, when you bring all that, those conversations about the ways that people criticize America, I think it should have some ways in which you, you, you try to put yourself in, in, in your, um, you know, in the other, uh, person's shoes, but I just feel like it's, it's constantly missed too. But I also want to, Ali, I have a question, um, because I asked you an email about, um, some things that a lot of people don't know about Iran. And you told me that, you know, Iran has been facing sanctions, not just since the revolution, but even prior to that, since the 1950s, when the first democratically elected prime minister nationalized Iran's oil sector. So if you don't mind, want to, you know, get into that, because I think that's really interesting. Yeah, sure. I mean, um, you know, it's it's a, a unknown story for, for, for many people who, who are not Iran junkies like I and others are. But, you know, essentially the first major um sanctions against Iran began in the 1950s when Iran's first democratically elected prime minister uh, was successful in basically nationalizing Iran's oil after they failed to reach an agreement with the British, who had since the 30s basically been reaping huge profits from, from Iran's oil sector, uh, giving you know, a very uh, unfair share 
as the Iranians saw it, back to Iran from reaping its resources. And essentially, they couldn't cut a deal with the British, and they decided to nationalize the, 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 the British company that was operating in Iran. And in retaliation, you know, post-war Britain, um, that was quite dependent on Iran's oil on the cheap, uh, decided to create a international boycott of Iran's oil, which was a major source of income, obviously, for Iran at the time. And they started to kind of stop Iranian ships, uh, you know, very similar to, to what the US sanctions do at the moment. Uh, they started to uh, create blockades on Iran's oil refineries. And it was essentially a sort of maximum pressure, uh, similar to the Trump era that we've seen with Iran, of the British trying to economically cripple Iran at the time in order to get them to change course. In the end, they weren't successful in doing that, but that whole saga led to the British and the United States, uh, you know, with the secret services, um, orchestrating a coup against that prime minister, Mossadegh, uh, in the 1950s to basically try and kick him out, kick his administration out, and replace him with a series of actors and a, and a monarchy figure who basically became the source of um, great discontent on the Iranian streets that led to the 1979 revolution. So I think that this is such a cautionary tale about how US and, and Western ideas about pressuring smaller nations to capitulate them into their demands often ends up backfiring in many ways that we just saw recently under the Trump administration, that kind of maximalist position from the United States backfiring on US interests because we were left with a much bigger Iranian nuclear program than what Trump started with. We started with, we ended up with the US and Iran coming to, you know, very close to military conflict in places like Iraq. And the US was unsuccessful in actually, you know, uh, bringing the Iranian um, uh, regime, as they called it, to their knees. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, Michelle, like another thing, you know, thank you, Ali, that's a really good point. But I think, Michelle, um, you know, you're at a, you know, you're you're in the DC think tank world, right? And <clears throat> there is a study out, and I forgot the um the name of it because I actually interviewed the author of it. And because I'm I'm actually writing, interestingly enough, I'm actually doing a show with her um in the next couple of weeks. It's a Iranian born um foreign policy expert. <clears throat> but she she did this, she conducted a survey of Iran experts in DC. And she found out that the vast majority of them can't read Persian, you know, um, <laughs> can't even speak at the basic level and they have to have some assistant, um, you know, some intern who actually does all their interpretation, but they're all on these national television networks talking about Iran, right? And I, I you know, and I see it in my own field sometimes now the thing is, is that i think that there it'd be one thing if you're learning it or if you are if you had some region but like these people had no experience whatsoever in the region like no linguistic capacity at all and how is it for you navigating this space and i've you know i've been on your podcast and now you're on mine i feel like i know your work fairly well 
how is it being in a culture full of white men who are constantly, you know, pushing their expertise, you know, and you know, like there's something that's missing, but you don't, you know, it has to be stressful being in an environment with that because I think it ultimately hurts foreign policy because the people are not really getting um, they're not really getting the solid information that they know because a lot of folks don't have the requisite knowledge, but they're being pushed as these experts anyway. Oh, man, it's a good question. And like to be upfront, this is why I don't consider myself an Iran expert. I'm a nuclear expert who knows something about the Iranian nuclear program, but I, you know, I'm not a regional area study, uh, a regional, a regional area studies person. Um, and you know, it's interesting. You learn, or at least my approach has always been to try to listen. How do people know what they know? Where did you get that from? Um, you know, the other, between the podcast, you know, the other part of my job is reading grant proposals where people say, I want to do this project. And a, a part of the process for us is always asking whether we ask them outright or we do our own research on it. What makes you the right person to do this project? What expertise are you bringing? Um, and, and why? Why does this need to be shared? All I can say is I've learned a lot by listening because I, I don't think there's a lot of that that goes on in the think tank world sometimes. So, and, and you're right. What ends up happening is the loudest voices are the ones that are most frequently cited you know, the bookers like to put the people who are the foreign policy experts in something else. You know, anytime there is a foreign policy crisis, they call them up and say, what do you know about this issue? Can you come talk on TV? And of course, they're going to say yes. Everyone loves to be on TV. Well, it's easier for men than women, but women, not as much. You know, even when I talk about this, like my area is definitely Eastern Europe and I focus on Ukraine and you know, Russia, but I'm very specific about what I know, right? Um, and there have been times, and what I'm starting to do now more often, if 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 I can't, um, let's for example, someone talks to me about insider Kremlin stuff, I don't take that because that's not what I do. I'm not based in Moscow. I don't talk about the Kremlin. That's not what I do. I talk about the intersection between U.S. and Kremlin policy. I do that. I could point to it, right? But and, and people, but people don't do it. I feel like people are so thirsty to be on air, and you know, and and, and what's really crazy is that they're not even like the the level of scrutiny. I think that people of color get, you know, like for example, I wrote this article that <laughs> basically listed uh, the insurrectionists as you know, like as terrorists, and 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 I wrote that the uh, GOP is supporting terror cells, which is true because they they are, and I brought on three foreign policy experts and they're all people of color and i'm looking at my twitter feed my mentions right now and i have a whole bunch of white men that are saying that they aren't experts right it's it's just a wild wild thing and mind you none of these people have you know they none of them have been in the military right most of them haven't been in the military they haven't served but they're telling these other folks where you can verify where they've been and where they've done that they're not policy experts. So like there's a racism too with who could talk about Iran and, you know, 
and and who can't because I just I'm telling you, Nagar, like I was very intentional about hey, I am one I mean, because I even talked to you, Michelle. Do you know any Iranians um who can come on the show and talk? Because I just feel like it's rude and disrespectful to talk about a country and you're not a part of it. You don't have any indigenous knowledge whatsoever. I just think it's so disrespectful, but it just happens so often, Nigar. And I know it has to frustrate you too. It does. It sure does. And I think it goes back to that big picture of a lack of access and also this dominance by the old guard. You know, foreign policy, I still think is one of the most male dominated fields. The media was like that for a very long time. It's changing now. Foreign policy is changing now. People are consciously uh, changing it, but I think it's very male dominant and uh, the Iran um, sphere is also like that. And I wouldn't, I, this is not based on a scientific research, but just my overall observation is that the more hawkish side is even more male and white dominated uh, when you talk about Iran, mm -hmm. as opposed to the more progressive, you know, more um, modern camp. And just, I want to add, bring something new into this, just so that we don't seem like we don't care about the aspirations of the Iranian people or the troubles that they go through, the movements that happen on the ground. You know, they're like any people, like Americans and anyone else, they are striving for human rights, for women's rights, for ethnicity rights, for religious freedom, for um, civil rights, and, and there's movements going on, but the way that gets tied to U.S. foreign policy, the way human rights is politicized, is instrumentalized, is the way Donald Trump tweets in Persian, or used to tweet before he got kicked off, in Persian about, you know, the human rights of the Iranian people, while the Iranian people were under a massive economic blockade, basically, by the same Donald Trump or Mike Pompeo trying to champion women's rights in Iran, you know, this conservative uh, person in the U.S. who's not even considered a champion for women's rights in America, let alone in foreign policy. I think it just it's a mockery of the aspirations of the Iranian people, some of them paying a very high price, sometimes even their life when they go out to protest against the government when they try to, you know, have all these grievances and things that they're striving for. I think that this feel good way of Donald Trump tweeting in Persian and then Ivanka tweeting on top of that saying, this is the most retweeted tweet in Persian ever. But did that change anything on the ground for Iranians? Not really, if it didn't make it worse. So I think that's also part of the equation that that that's made it into a black and white situation or a, I, don't, I don't want to say black and white, but just uh, either an or situation. Either you care about Iranian human rights and you instrumentalize it and you politicize it or, um, you know, if you're not tweeting in Persian, then that means you're abandoning the the aspirations of Iranians. And I don't think it's a it's a zero sum game like that. And the United States has frankly not been so helpful by politicizing, um, you know, human rights and other movements that are happening on the ground in Iran. If anything, it's it hurts them. It hurts them when Mike Pompeo comes and tries to champion a movement and, um, you know, in a way sabotage it. You know what I want to do is I'm I'm going to keep having these conversations and I'm going to be talking about different subjects about Iran because I'll tell you. I learned more from there are two shows where I learned a lot about Iranian culture, just the people in there, no politics. 
there's this guy, his name is Rick Steves, and he has this travel channel on PBS called Rick Steves Europe. I think it's pretty fun. He did a show in, in Iran. Now, of course, he had a minder and all this other stuff. Fine, but you really got a chance to see people just in their regular life. And I was like, oh, this is just so cool. And then I saw there's this other YouTuber, um, this YouTube show called The Best Food Show Ever. And they did maybe three or four episodes in Iran. And they went across the country and you just saw all the food. And I just instantly got hungry. I'm like, oh, my God, I just want to go there and just and eat, you know, just by itself. Right. And <clears throat> I, I think that we should do I'm, I'm really thankful that we had this conversation and we need more like them that, you know, informs people to talk about news, but also talk about just regular stuff. Cause I'm telling you what really informs my knowledge about this region is not necessarily that I'm talking with politicals all day. I'm just in the mountains chilling and you just learn from people just going to their tables and talking to them. And I feel like we need more table talk and we need to recreate images about how, you know, that, that basically show people as human beings. And we, I think in media, we don't do enough of that. And I really want to thank y'all from coming on to my podcast, taking time out of y'all very busy schedules to help us to have a conversation that I think, you know, right now, a lot of people will listen to and they'll just rethink some things. And, um, you know, and even with me to continue to learn and the God, like definitely uh, check out the Iran podcast and, you know, I'm subscribing. And so, uh, and, and Plowshare is fun. My favorite nuclear nonproliferation podcast out there. And Ellie, I don't know. I try to look for you. I don't know if you have a podcast or anything out there. You want me to shout out, but if you do, let me know. Do you have one? Cause I tried, I looked. Sadly, I don't, but uh, you can follow me on Twitter if, if you want to learn a bit more about foreign policy on Iran. Uh, it's at, at Ellie Jeremiah. We did a show, y'all. Again, thank y'all for coming on The Black Diplomats. I think this has been great. Oh, that was great. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, Terrell. Thanks a lot for listening. Please go and support the podcast by going on your favorite platforms, including Spotify and iTunes, and give us a five-star rating. And go on to Patreon, search for Black Diplomats Podcast, and donate what you can. All right, talk to you next week.